What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. We're, we're going to start the recording in just a second, uh, but we're so happy to be here. It's exciting. It's very exciting to be here in our first ever Bloomberg house, this yeah. beautiful space in the city. I think it's in the chalet, I think, isn't it? Is the... <laughs> is I think what we should be calling it. And, but it does feel like the whole world is sort of descending here. Yeah. Economics, business, finance, but most of all tech, right? I took a walk down the promenade there and it is a little bit like a sort of AI trade fair, right? <laughs> Every single <laughs> shop front is, is trumpeting something about AI. So something we're gonna get into a bit in the conversation. So we're starting. Welcome to In the City, everyone. Bloomberg's podcast connecting you to the conversations and the stories in shaping the world of finance. I'm Francine Lacroix. And I am David Merritt. And this week, we are in the mountains um, of Switzerland in Davos as global leaders and quite a few journalists uh, descend on this Alpine village for the World Economic Forum's annual meeting. And we're going to be looking at the challenges facing the world, of which there are many uh, in 2024, and talk a little bit about how prepared we are to face them. Yeah, so with us, and we are really delighted and honored, Sadia Sahidi from the World Economic Forum, Azim Azar, creator of the Exponential View of Global Platform for in-depth tech analysis and the host of Bloomberg original series, Exponentially. So thank you both Welcome. for joining us. Sadia, you um, actually published a report looking through the global risks, the top global risks in the next 12 months and then longer term. Like, can you run us through your top risks? Yeah, sure. Well, thank you for having me. Number one, mis- and disinformation. And to some extent, we were surprised. This was down at number 16 last year, and it shot up to becoming the number one risk so quickly. And of course, understandable, because we've all seen low-cost or zero-cost technologies in our hands that can produce a lot of synthetic content. So a lot of concern around that, especially in a year where so many people around the world are going into elections. Following on right from that, extreme weather, beyond that, um, societal polarization. And obviously, that is deeply connected to what's happening with mis- and disinformation. But the economic risks are not that far behind. There's still concern about inflation. There's still concern about the potential of an economic downturn that's still number nine in the two-year time frame. So looking out over the next 24 months, quite a bit of concern about that. And then you look 10 years out, and it's really all about climate. So extreme weather, potential changes to the Earth's um, systems, uh, loss of biodiversity, and um, uh, a lot of concern around loss of uh, natural resources. And again, there, mis- and disinformation. And what rises really to the top is other adverse effects of artificial intelligence. That's very low down in the two-year time frame, number 29 out of 34, and then jumps up into the top 10 in the 10-year time frame. And uh, Azim, can we even tell when it's fake news or fake information and the real one, given how good some of the AI stuff is right now? I think one of the reasons why it's jumped up so much is that this past year has been the year of generative AI, and it's getting better and better. Uh, although, and there is an important although, it's one thing for it to be created, it's another thing for it to be distributed, and it's another thing for people to read it, and it's another thing for people to 
to believe in it. And I do agree with the experts who contributed to the, uh, the forum's uh, risk report that misinformation and disinformation should be really high up our agenda this year. But I think it's also important to recognise that the academics are still to pronounce as to whether these things really are real. And, and a lot of the worries we had around misinformation, disinformation stemming from as, uh, as early as 2016 seem to have mixed evidence as to whether that's really uh, the, you know, the, the, the path. And I think one of the risks that we, we run is not that we don't face a more challenging um, environment as it pertains to truth and fact. It's that the AI component is only one part of it. There are other aspects in this ecosystem that are weak. Are politicians willing to exploit uh, these, these types of stories. There are the distribution patterns uh, that occur over social network. There's the capacities of media organizations to verify and validate this stuff, or even sometimes, as we, we've seen in the last few months, spread the misinformation themselves. So when we look at this problem, if we cry wolf and simply point towards AI as a source of mis and disinformation, we'll issue the wrong prescription. You know, in the, in the podcast we had last week with Ian Bremer for Eurasia, we were talking about their risks as well. And he, uh, he said something which stuck in my mind. Their top risk, by the way, was the United States versus itself, you know, thinking <laughs> about the election and the potential right. outcomes. But he said in the last 20 years, the United States has, has gone from being the chief uh, exporter of democracy in the world to the chief exporter of tools to undermine democracy. And he's talking, obviously, about social media and, that, mm. and the growth of that as the way that people consume their news. Do you agree with that, Azim? And does that answer the question of why this particular concern is shot right up to the top again? Well, uh, the US has exported tools like that, but the US also has companies like uh, Google and Microsoft uh, and Meta who have election integrity teams who are working on sharing uh, with their, their, their private com um, competitors, but also with uh, the, the, the public sector, tools and technologies for video stamping and authentication and watermarking. Uh, and they have incident responses uh, as well. So I think there is an important part of this picture, which is... But yes, I mean, is that sufficient, though? I mean, is well, it working? I, I, I mean, you know, I think that the, the trouble is that you, you, you see the fire and then the firemen arrive. But I think we can say that when it came to extreme content on YouTube, YouTube or Alphabet was able ultimately to do a great job in, in tackling it. And I think that it's really telling that a number of the large te technology platform firms have already announced that they have election integrity strategies in place um, ahead of actually what I've heard from nation states themselves uh, saying. And, and so, so I think, yes, of course, technology is a problem, but it can also be part of the solution. Zadia? Maybe just one other point to add to that. I think it's also about how people are receiving that information. It's about media literacy as well. And we also went a little deeper into different countries. And in the US, Mis and disinformation doesn't show up as a number one risk despite being in that election year. In India and in Pakistan, also having elections this year, it's among the top five risks. So it's also a little bit about what citizens um, are able to consume, how much media digital literacy they have. And so it pops up uh, much higher in certain parts of the world. But when you look at, the, for example, the U.S. elections, I guess the concern is, is meddling right, from, from other countries. Right. And people are worried because this could spread. I mean, again, in your research side, can you give us a little bit of, of a worst case scenario? On the U.S.-based risk, almost all were economic. 
And that seems to be top of mind. But I think there's a connection between those two things where you have economic hardship, where you also have societal polarization. Those two things together provide fertile ground for um, disinformation, for misinformation, whether that is state-sponsored or whether that's spread through other sources. I mean, the problem, Dave, is that I look, so I'm on social media a lot, probably too much. Um, and, and a lot of the things I, I watch, I don't really, I mean, I, I know because I work at Bloomberg that it's fake information, but I don't see the watermarks, frankly. I don't see, like in the stuff I consume, if, yeah, and, if you don't what, know how news works. What I'm it, seeing more now is people seeing images of things and instantly saying, well, that's just AI or that's generally, no, that's fake. Yeah. There's a kind of, there's a skepticism now led on everything and news reporting, journalism, that wasn't there, particularly things like images, which in the past people would trust, and now that trust is really eroding. Well, I mean, the Pope wasn't wearing a Balenciaga he wasn't, right? uh, puffer after all great, that. Are we but, sure about this? Well, uh, I mean, you'd know, Francine, I would say, <laughs> if anyone. Uh, but but I, and I think that that, that takes us to a re really important risk, which is that um, by, by flooding, the, the, the phrase was flooding the zone, right? with flooding the zone with material that might or might not be believable or might or might not be true, uh, what you end up doing is weakening the trust in the few institutions that are, are arbiters of that factuality. Now, I think Bloomberg and, and some of the other uh, media businesses generally do quite a good job, but the owners Thanks, now, yeah, no, now well, I'm okay. my host and you gave me a nice <laughs> cookie earlier on, um, but, but the onus uh, is going to be on you and your peers as well to increase your capabilities uh, of identifying what these issues are, raising the level of factuality across this information ecosystem. Because if we start to distrust the likes of the, 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 the storied newspapers, because they do make mistakes from time to time, and because the zone is full of synthetic material, uh, I think we then do make ourselves susceptible in the way that some of the populations that Sadia alluded to are more susceptible to misinformation. Is it because it's such a big political year, this as well? Like people, I mean, it's the, it, everyone's talked about this, the great democratic exercise that is 2024. Huge amounts of the world are going to the polls. Is that why this is such a hot topic right now? I think that's certainly some of what we picked up from the experts, that the 1,500 or so experts that, that fed into this as to the reason why this raised up to the top. But I think the longer term sort of erosion in trust in truth and objectivity and facts, I think there, it goes beyond that particular election mm -hmm. year. Um, it can affect everything from you know, health, and I think we've seen that through the pandemic. It can affect um, what we believe in terms of social justice. It can affect what people believe on so many different topics. So I think it affects more. And of course, climate change is another big one where there needs to be some agreement around science and objectivity and facts. I think AI is everything from, I guess, if, if you're, you know, Googling something like color matching, if you get, need to get foundation to people saying, actually, you, you don't put the human, you know, in the middle of this technology anymore. And so we could literally end up like Terminator 2 mm -hmm. or 3 or I don't know how many Terminators they did. Like, where are you in, in how ugly yeah. AI could, could become for humankind? Well, I, I think we, we do that partly because it's more interesting to have lurid conversations like that than to talk about questions like workforce transformation uh, as we start to automate certain business processes. I mean, one is it fills box offices and, you know, the other fills consulting firms. So, you know, you have to, to pick, your, pick your stories. But, but I, I, I think one of the things that's happened with, with AI is that compared to other technologies that I've tracked from the internet and, and beyond, um, there is very, very strong grassroots adoption of 
AI tools like ChatGPT in organizations, even if there isn't an official policy. And increasingly, the CEO is the one who's rattling the cage saying, what are we doing with, with generative AI? And that wasn't the case with with the internet, and it wasn't the case with mobile or cloud computing. And I think that creates the conditions for a perfect storm in the next year or two for firms to really build lots of AI tools because their, their frontline employees want them and the bosses at the top want them. And that, that will compress the amount of time it will take for these, these things to become quotidian within large firms and then, of course, with us as customers of those businesses. But do we, ha do we have, for example, Sadia, a number of how many jobs will be lost? And uh, I was speaking to uh, the Norwegian sovereign wealth fund head, the biggest sovereign wealth in the world, and he was saying, you know what, you're going to be 20% more productive when you use AI. I was like, uh, 20%? But then you don't really know the time frame. Again, are, are we over-optimistic about how fast the transformation happens? Yeah, so I think the picture is a bit mixed. Overall, what we found is that roughly a quarter of all jobs could go through some kind of structural churn, both increasing and decreasing um, over time in the next five years. So um, we did this last year up to 2027. The second thing we did, though, is try to go deeper into um, where are LLMs actually most likely to be impacting different roles. And there's a set of roles that will be displaced because so much of the tasks within those roles are essentially repetitive language-based tasks, and so they can be displaced. There are roles which will be automated, and that's the big firms where there will be product increase in productivity and increase in efficiency because we will all be able to you know, find that 20% extra time and space because we'll be using some of those tools. And then there are roles that will remain untouched because they're going to be very much about physical activity and labor, whether that's in retail or in care, maybe they will become more efficient because planning tools will be better, but the core of the role is going to remain fairly untouched. So we sort of ran through that. And I, I don't think that we can conclusively say how many roles that's going to be impacting. Um, but what is clear is that given the nature of these types of roles, there's going to be a win for a lot of developed economies, and it's going to be more disruptive in developing economies. Again, it depends on what type of task and role somebody's doing. I mean, I, as I was saying, when you walk around with the, with the you know, the, 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 the AI badging and all the companies, I mean, does this feel like, and you're a veteran of Davos, Azim, and you too, Francine, like, does this feel like the AI Davos, where this is going to be totally dominant, this conversation? Uh, well, I, I think the, the Davos represents the forces that are shaping the world in, in some uh, way. And of course, we are in a world where it's the technology companies that are the, the commercial businesses that, that drive things in the way that 30 years ago, it was the oil, oil businesses. So I think it's not surprising that uh, you see quite a lot of AI companies, you know, there are a lot of prime ministers here. And we know that society has woken up to the fact that Technology is not just about productivity and efficiency. It's also about the impact it has on people's lives as citizens, uh, their sense of belonging, their sense of worth, and, and actually how, how well they feel they're doing. So I'm, I'm actually pleased that the AI discussion is not one that's restricted to boardrooms, but is also taking place in, in cabinet rooms as well. Just thinking about you know, the, the image that Davos has as a convening around the world, it is about the elite, isn't it? And it, over the years, questions are asked about Davos, man or woman, and the relevance to the real world. And on, on this question, AI, if it really is going to cut 15% or 20% of jobs, that has a huge impact on yeah. the average person who works for an organization. Is this debate, is this discussion of the elite talking to themselves about these efficiencies, is it, 
Is it going to be, is that just going to drive home that stereotype of, of this bubble up here in the I mean, I, I would love to uh, hear from, from Sadia. Sadia. That's from Sadia. That's from Sadia. But, but I, my impression is that it, it, I just was one sentence that it, that it isn't. I, I rarely, in the last year or two, have had conversations. There's one exception when I was in a room full of CFOs where the only chief financial officers, the only thing we talked about, they talked about was, was efficiencies. Right. But in every other conversation that I've had, whether it's policymakers or, or business leaders, they're really, really aware of questions like reskilling and displacement. But you, you have a much better picture no, I'm, of Davos I'm community. I'm glad you said that. I think um, there's really a, a positive trajectory here because I think we all recall 2015, 2016, um, rise of the robots. Everyone's talking about how the integration of robots into manufacturing could be so disruptive to workers that are in factories. And I think we've seen that the reality play out there where, yes, there has been integration of a lot of that technology, um, but there also hasn't quite been in the same way that people thought mm. it would be disruptive. Now, because of some of that conversation, we kicked off in 2020 this 10-year initiative on the reskilling revolution with a number of the ministers, the companies that um, are really in a position to actually provide some of that reskilling and upskilling. And that kicked off a movement where we said we'll get there in 10 years, reach a billion people. And we're going to be announcing this week that we're crossing the 600 million mark with that effort. So across 30 economies, across, I think, 150 different companies. So a lot happening there. And now, of course, this year, the conversation is going to be, how do we orient that, that to specifically to the jobs that are going to be disrupted because of artificial intelligence? And how do we take some of that reskilling towards the new roles that will be created because of AI? Can I pivot a little bit to some of the geopolitics you mentioned? There are a lot of prime ministers <laughs> and world leaders. I mean... It struck me seeing the presence of the Ukrainian delegation here and, uh, you know, this forum making headlines over the weekend in an attempt to put forward a, a proposal potentially for peace. I mean, that's, a, you know, one of the biggest geopolitical problems facing the world. And the Ukrainian president will be here this week making an address. Um, what role can this convening make in solving, you know, arguably one of the most intractable problems in the world at the moment, Sadia? For us, I mean, we look at the theme of this meeting, rebuilding trust. It is a particularly polarizing moment. We believe that people have to talk to each other. And so a big part of what this meeting is about, bring together people from across the world. We have um, over 100 um, countries represented, nearly 60 heads of state, 200 plus ministers across various portfolios. 1,600 businesses, there's a reason I think that everybody's coming together because they have the same sense that we need to have that conversation. I think a second element is there has to be alignment around some of the things that need to be done. And certainly on the geopolitical side, there will be quite a few private meetings, including the meeting that was um, hosted by the Swiss and the Ukrainian governments here in Davos, but on a number of these other topics. So what we just discussed, AI and reskilling, there has to be an actual alignment around, okay, what next? What's the next two years sort of plan? Where is it that the focus areas should be? And then the third element is, I think for any of that trust to be rebuilt, there has to be a focus on action. There has to be delivery. There has to be accountability and there has to be transparency. And that is where actually reporting out on the um, proposals that were made last year, how did that go? How have we delivered against that? I think that's key. See, I guess when we were talking about trust and the fact that, yeah. you know, the, the need to talk to each other, is AI an enabler of people coming together or is it not? I, I think it is an enabler. I, we all uh, have had this experience because if you've ever used Google Translate, that is AI 
because it's become so uh, commonplace, we don't think of it as AI, but when it, it machine translation, the idea that I can communicate to someone who, who is in Thailand and doesn't speak much English and I don't certainly speak no Thai, is remarkable. And so we've already seen, we've already benefited from the dividend uh, of, of AI in that, in that way. Now, we, we have a new set of tools. And I think there is, there's a sort of ironic world where we can all produce perfect email sales pitches because we've all used ChatGPT, but at the same time, none of them are being read by humans because they're being read by my ChatGPT-enabled email client. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, all, the beauty is, all the beauty is lost. I do think that, uh, you know, people do remain social creatures. They come to, to Davos. It's not the easiest place to come to. It's cold for most of us. Um, and they come because there are things you can do when you're with other people. And AI has the capability to allow us to do that, to create the space to spend time to do that. It could also be used to create solipsistic digital virtual worlds where we just you know, sit in our headsets and never meet another human. And in, that, in some sense, that's our, that's our choice. But, but, but I think you know, in, in, in absence of other sort of strange things happening, it should create the space and also the motivation to sit down and, and work with people to get uh, face to face. How long does it take? So to understand what we want AI to be, how we'll use it. I think much of what we've been discussing is is sort of you know where most of us work in the sort of knowledge economy that we're in. But I think we shouldn't forget there's massive potential, for example, for drug discovery. You know, in just in purely the field of medicine, um, what artificial intelligence can do, and you're going to see quite a lot of that in the in the forum this week. Just the potential of what we can get right. And I think that's where there also needs to be a lot of focus. We absolutely need to be watching out for the risks, but there also needs to be a focus on the options. And is that part of the solution to solving or, or dissipating this misinformation, this suspicion, this fear that everyone's got that we're being fed fake stuff, but focusing on some of these positives instead? Are we going to hear a little of that this week, do you think? I think both things have to be done. I think the risk around mis- and disinformation is real. I think that has to be dealt with as well. And then there is at the same time an enormous amount of opportunity of the use of artificial intelligence, whether it's in public services or medicine or other fields or education. That's going to be a big piece of what we'll look at um, this, this week, education meeting AI and what that can do. And again, it contains just even within that topic alone, there are both risks and opportunities. Well, Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Dave, that was a great conversation. It was interesting to actually look at AI not only as, you know, doom and gloom or it's going to save us all, but it was a very nuanced and balanced conversation on the benefits and actually how it will transform business. I mean, it's the theme of this week, isn't it? And I remember a couple of years ago, it was all about crypto. Yeah. So you have the Congress Center, and of course, inside the Congress Center, there's no ads. It's, you know, the panels about the global economy, about inflation, about Ukraine, and then you come out and it's really all about AI. Totally. I mean, every shop front has got a sign in it and it's whether it's a bank or whether it's a technology company, they're slapping those two letters everywhere. 
to try to badge themselves as being part of that conversation, right? Uh, and, you know, I guess the question I have after listening to all that is, is it all hype? Is it just this year's crypto or is this a little bit more significant? Yeah, and I think so the way a couple of chief executives say they look at it is actually it changes what we do. So it has to be in everything you do. Yeah. So it's, you know, how you use your phone, how you market, how you speak to clients. And so it's a bit of a strange way. It could really change, basically, productivity. I was worried you hear uh, the Sovereign Wealth Fund of, I think, Norway telling me that I have to be 20% more productive right. when we have AI. Can and we I said, be... just make sure Dave doesn't listen to this. <laughs> yeah, I'll be watching. Uh, but I thought, what did we think? First podcast in front of the audience? I'm addicted. All right. I think I we, need to, we need a bigger venue next time, right? <laughs> we need donuts. <laughs> we need an audience. So should we do the sign-off? Let's do the sign-off. Do you remember it off the top of your head? I, I am very blonde. Uh, I have no idea what the sign-off is. We've been doing back to for you. So it's Thank thanks so for listening <laughs> for this Thank week's <laughs> In the Chalet. <laughs> um, this episode was hosted by me, David Merritt. And I'm Francine Lacqua. Uh, and it was produced by Summer Saudi. And special thanks to Sadia Zahidi and Azim Azar. Boom. <laughs> I'm glad he's switched up. Thank you, Dave, for saving me. Okay. I'll like, do you right. Thanks for listening nice. this week. Thanks. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more.